Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. On this edition of Women Who Lead, you'll meet three women doing amazing work in our community. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. Our first guest on today's show is Lynette Dowler, the president and chairman of the DTE Energy Foundation and the vice president of public affairs for DTE Energy. Lynette is one of our 2022 Women Who Lead honorees. And Lynette is being honored this year by WJR for the incredible work she has been doing for years in Metro Detroit and throughout the state of Michigan, supporting nonprofits. Congratulations, Lynette, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. Talk a little bit about the work that you do, Lynette, and and your commitment to all of these nonprofits. It's amazing. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I often say I have the best job in the company, and the reason for that is our work really shows the heart of DTE. And we have the beautiful opportunity to work with about 400 nonprofits all across the state of Michigan um, to really be a force for growth in the communities. And um, our, our vision is all about um, driving and thriving, driving sustainable, thriving communities. Um, we focus on arts and culture. We love to work with education, workforce development initiatives. Um, we really believe that uh, small businesses and community, local community businesses, th- drive economic development. So we love to work with nonprofits that help small business development. And of course, we we care for our environment. So we do a ton of work around planting trees and working with organizations that care for our air, land and water. Lynette, how did you get to the job that you have today? What's your path? So so, um, I'm a bit of a unicorn. I I did not have a traditional path. I spent my first 24 years in the company working at Fermi 2 nuclear power plant. And I was there when we were building the plant, licensing the plant, um, going into initial operation. And um, so first 24 years we're we're at Fermi, I spent seven years running two coal-fired power plants, our Ludington Hydro plant, our Peaker division, our our wind division, and our our shops. So none of that really gets close to community, right? It's all about serving serving our customers. Um, And um, through that iteration, um, I I ended up being Jerry Norcia, our our president, our our CEO's. um, I ended up being his chief of staff when he came to the company to run the gas business. So I got to learn the entirety of our gas business all across the state of Michigan, including the Upper Peninsula. So through all of those jobs, one of the things that Jerry Norcia knew about me is he knew that my personal passion was for the people in our communities. Hmm. Um, I've been in state and out of state, out of the country on mission trips, serving those who had barriers to um, sustainable food, water, things of that nature. So Jerry knew that about me. He knew I loved community. So um, there came a time when they were looking for someone to really lead the community connection. And, um, you know, Jerry just had an important conversation with me around um, taking my operational experience that I shared with you, taking my operational experience and and operationalizing how we help drive great income, great outcomes for our communities. And um, so it's just been um, blessings along the way that led me to the best job in the company. 
Were you always like that growing up? Did you have a passion for helping others? Yeah, I think that's always kind of been my my innate nature is to really um, look at the broad view of what's happening around me and understand what my role is in making a difference in a positive way. Um, my husband and I often talk about it doesn't matter where you go, but you need to make sure you leave it a little better than when you left, up to and including walking into a restaurant and, you know, how are you treating the people in the restaurant? And, you know, if, if the, the person sitting next to you has a little baby and they drop some things on the floor, how can you be helpful in that way? And I, I think that's just uh, what we need to do as a society. In the role that you have now, Lynette, how do you make the decision about <laughs> who you're going to help, what organizations you're going to help? Because that's got to be kind of tough. That's the hardest part of the job. Because every nonprofit in the state of Michigan, and we have thousands, uh, they do amazing work. And so for us, it's all about do they do work in our six key priorities, basic human needs, arts and culture, environment? I mentioned many of them. Do they do work in, um, do they do work in our region where we serve customers? And then are they sustainable? Like, do they have a good business plan and are they making an impact? So we create a strategy for every pillar and we find nonprofit organizations um, that are uh, aligned with us from a mission perspective and really are uplifting their community. So um, uh, it might be surprising to some that the vast majority of our grants are small grants. We do some large grants, right? But the vast majority of our grants are small grants because it's often, you know, that small food pantry in that rural community that uh, $5,000 can mean a world of difference or $10,000. So it's really about patching together um, those nonprofits that really fit in our wheelhouse of our mission. Talk about how important it is for a corporation to be connected to a foundation, to giving in the community and what it means for both the corporation and the community. Well, it, you know, it, it's integral. It, it, it's mm-hmm. it, it's integral. You know, Jerry Anderson, Jerry Norcia, uh, Tony Early all had a vision that if our community's strong, our company's strong, right? It's not just about yes. the company. If our community's strong, our company's strong. So if we can help uplift our community and if we can share what we have as a corporate uh, corporate organization and be a good corporate citizen to our community it's just a full circle it's it's, it's the infinity loop um, do good in your community your community uh, does good to you as a corporation and let's give a little bit of advice to young girls young women that are just starting in their careers your path is fascinating i mean you started on one side of the business you're now on the other side of the business you know, talk a little bit about careers for women in the business that you're in. Yeah, I, I would I would really encourage um, uh, your your young female listeners to just be bold and be brave. And there's not there's nothing that you can't do if you set your mind to do it. Um, as I kind of explained my path, many of my steps were um, unusual or outside of the norm, and they were f- terrifying, right? <laughs> Right. The more terrified you are to take the next job, it's probably the exact right job for you to take. But in order to make the decisions in those terrifying moments, make sure you know who you are and what the core of your belief system is. Because if you choose to take a terrifying job that isn't aligned with who you are as as an individual, um, it probably won't be the best decision. So, you know, my, my priorities are faith, family, friends, finances and fitness, take care of myself. Um, and 
you know, if, if I make decisions that don't align with I, those five things, I'll probably land in a bad space. So it's okay to be terrified. It's okay to be nervous, but be bold. Did you have mentors along the way? You, somebody asked me that, uh, somebody that I'm mentoring asked me that question yesterday. And I, I really did not have a lot of mentors professionally. Um, my, my, I call it kind of my chairmans of the board. My chairmans of the board were my family um, and my, my, my faith leaders. Um, I didn't have the kind of mentors that I probably needed to have and should have had along the way. Um, uh, and and I, I think mentorship is huge. Um, so I've, I've been a student of ob- observation and watched what works and what doesn't work and who I want to be and how I don't want to lead. And I think I learned as much from some of the worst leaders that I had um, is anything, because I knew that's not what I wanted to do. That's so interesting. Now, how do you balance everything? What about the issue of balance, you know, work, family, community work? How do you do that? Yeah. So it's, it's uh, uh, I don't think there's a secret recipe other than to say, surrounding myself with a great support system. We, we raised four children, and we've got three beautiful grandchildren and one on the way. And um you know, I, I think it's really about having your priorities. I'm going to go back to faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances, right? Like, that's a lot. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's compartmentalizing how to navigate each element of that so that none of them are totally out of balance. And if I find myself in a bad space personally, it's usually because I've neglected my friends or I've neglected my fitness or I've neglected my work. So um, uh, it's tough. And I would just say surround yourself with positive goodness and uh, be open to uh, uh, failure has lessons and uh, take those lessons uh, as lessons, not as failure, right? Because we don't, we, we don't do perfect. Sometimes we, we went to the meeting when we should have gone to the dentist, right? Um, right. It, Very it, interesting. It, yeah. yeah. So, you know, now, during the pandemic, we are seeing a lot of women really struggling with raising families and having a career. What kind of advice do you have for them to help them get through this right now, Lynn, Lynette? Um, my, my first piece of advice was, would be to cut yourself some slack. It's okay to um, want to be working but need to be home. It's okay to take a furlough from work to be home if that's the right space for you and your family at the time. It's also okay to, you know, work the afternoon shift when you actually really wanted to have the day shift. Um, you know, my, my biggest advice to, to women is just cut yourself slack and, and know that we all have to sacrifice. We all have to sacrifice. Men, women, young people, seniors. Um, but if, if you, you, you drive your, your decision-making around what's the, what's the best option, maybe not the perfect option, um, that, that would be my advice, but cut yourself some slack. It's okay to get off, get, off the, get off the train on occasion. And, you know, that's really important advice is it's okay to get off the train because you can always get back on the train. So if you have to take a break in your career, I always tell young women who come and talk to me, that's okay. You'll get back on the track. It's not a big deal to step away and do what you need to do for your family. You'll never be sorry about that. Yep, you'll never be sorry. And, and the other thing I would say is ask for help. Ask for help. If, if, you're, if you're stressed, you're struggling. I mean, sometimes just 
having the um, comfort to say, I, I need a hand, I, I, need, I need two hours, I need a break. It's okay, ask for help. You deserve it, you need it. You can't be your best if, if, if you're, you're stressed or underwater. Lynette Dowler, President and Chairman of the DTE Energy Foundation and Vice President of Public Affairs for DTE Energy, thank you for the wonderful advice and congratulations. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be right back after these messages. You are listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and we continue the conversation now by saying hello and welcome to Edith Lee Payne. Edith is a civil rights activist, a historian, and a political strategist. Edith, welcome to the show. It's really nice to meet you. Hello. Thank you so much for the invitation. Edith, just talk a little bit about your background. First of all, let's kind of address the civil rights activist. How did you get started with that? And I believe you started pretty young. Yes, I got started as a civil rights activist um, actually before my 12th birthday. There was a photograph that was taken of me at the August 28th, 1963 March on Washington. It kind of propelled me into that position. But I've always kind of innately had that desire or need to fix something that was wrong or address an issue that I thought was unfair. The photograph, however, just kind of confirmed for me that in my later life uh, that I was doing, that, that I was living sort of this the dream that Dr. King spoke of and uh, that being a civil rights activist is what I was supposed to do. What are some of the important causes that you have taken up over the years, Edith? Well, some of the causes that I have um, taken up include uh, housing, fair housing, education, quality education, let me be more specific, um, public safety. And when my son passed away 30 years ago, I donated his organs and became very involved with organ and tissue donation and course people having the uh, the need to live was became a very important thing since it was personal to me let's talk first about housing and education okay. so based on what you've seen over the years have things gotten better due to some of the the change that you've pushed for or do we still have a long way to go edith well, we still have a way to go. I mean, when you look at the way things are economically, um, housing affordability, for example, it's now it's it's reversing into something that people can't afford, whether it's to rent. And then there are homes that aren't available for people to buy because investors are snatching them up. Um, so they're taking that American dream away. That was not something that I was as involved in as it was uh, making sure that people had the right to live wherever they wanted to. Um, I was a real estate agent during my time, during the time I lived in Landover, Maryland. So there were those experiences where um, homeowners did not necessarily want our clients, if they were people of color, 
uh, to move into their neighborhoods. And, and some were very vocal about that. That was, of course, disturbing. Um, but the trend of racial inequality is, is still just that. It's While it seems to have improved when we see the way things transpire in law, with law enforcement, particularly, the needle doesn't seem to have moved moved much. Actually, it, in some regards, it seems that it's moved in the wrong direction. Well, let's kind of get into this, the law enforcement, public safety. Okay. How are you feeling in 2022 about those issues? Well, I'm feeling very disturbed being the mother of, of two sons and the grandmother of five sons and the great-grandmother of two great-grandsons. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it, but also for my granddaughters, because I've had the experience of being pulled over by the police for absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. um, just because they could. And, and obviously seeing that I was a person of color, there was that off chance, well, maybe there's a warrant or maybe there's something that's kind of where it leads. It, I'm, it, it I'm put sometimes in a compromising position because I'm not anti-police. My husband was a police officer. I serve on the board of the 12th Precinct Police Community Relations. So it's really, really important to me that we have a good, strong police community relationship. But we know that not all officers feel the same way. And it's getting the the officers that are law-abiding um, and respectful of the community, the people that they serve, getting them on board to point out, you know, the problems that are occurring within their departments. In other words, the blue code has to cease to exist uh, it, because it's for their safety as well as it is ours. I ended up having to live in Maryland I was living in Detroit at the time when I met my husband, but he refused to come to Detroit to be a police officer because in the uh, mid-70s, police officers were just being shot randomly because of the way that law enforcement was treating members of the community. So it's we still need to, it's still a struggle that we need to work on. Um, It's only going to change when we collectively do it, when law enforcement gets involved, when unions get involved that more often than not tend to block the progress and the things that that need to happen. Like no-knock warrants, for example, they serve no purpose. And after the first incident where someone was mistakenly killed, um, when and it, you know they entered the wrong place, and then the, the dangers that... Um, the neighbors were placed, you know, when shots were fired, it, it just serves no purpose. It kind of takes away from the aspect of serving the public. Yes, we want you to get the perpetrator. Absolutely. But not at the expense of someone's life. And why would you, why would there be a need, for example, to have to not knock on someone's door, enter their home and then they end up losing their life and they're not the ones that you were going there for after, you know, anyway. So, I mean, those are simple little things that just don't do it anymore. It doesn't take a vote. It doesn't take an act of Congress. It doesn't even take an act of God. It just means that's a policy, however it started, that it needs to be undone. It needs to be changed. 
How do you think we're doing in Detroit, the relationship between the community and police? I think Detroit is doing quite well mm-hmm. in in our relationship, uh, our mutual relationship. You know, as I said, I serve on the board of the 12th Precinct uh, Police Community Relations and have for at least 30 years. Wow. Um, our community works well with our police department. And I'm not saying just the 12th. I mean, overall, I, I know officers up the chain, up to deputy and assistant police chiefs, and have watched them go up the ranks. The majority of them are as concerned and personable with the community. We don't have the kind of incidents that we see like in in Minnesota and other parts of the country. Um, Even after the George Floyd incident, we did not have police responding in, in a, in a, a, a rage of terror uh, to try to keep violence down because there really wasn't any. And the people that descended downtown to just, you know, protest, which they had the right to do, some of them were not as authentic in their reasons for wanting to protest. So we have to watch those kinds of things to be sure that it's not a reflection of the community because it wasn't our community. And when I say our community, I don't mean racially. It wasn't our community people that I have marched with, walked with, <clears throat> sat before city council or board of police commissioner meetings concerned about what's happening. They were not a part of that group. So, um, but all in all, I think that the police department handled it extremely well and, um, and they continue to do well. There are some bad seeds, absolutely, um, that happens. But I think we've had police chiefs, especially the one that we have right now, that um, are willing to hold them accountable if they fail to live up to the standards that, um, that the community expects them to have. I've also seen some interesting stories recently that indicate that while some big cities around the country are really dealing with some terrible problems with crime, Detroit is actually faring a lot better than some of these other cities. Why do you think that might be? Well, like I said before, um, the Detroit Police Department, um, the 12th Precinct is is not the only police community relations. All the precincts have them. They have a good relationship with leaders of the community. So they work together. So if there is crime, we meet monthly, but because of COVID we're doing it virtually, but we get statistic, you know, we get reports on where crime is and what's going on. And then we share things with the police department and work alongside of them to not literally, but (laughs) work along with them to be sure that, you know, the things that they're bringing to our attention and the things that we're, of course, bringing to their attention get worked on. If it's uh, abandoned cars in the community, if it's someone that's um, watching people's homes, you know, we just work together with them. So I applaud the Detroit Police Department in in our community. Uh, Those that aren't involved with what we do don't get to see that. So you may hear someone say, well, the Detroit Police Department is uh, and has something negative to say. Um, And we still try to encourage more and more people to become involved and see what's going on. Uh, But 
<clears throat> I think that it's that relationship between the community and the police department that sets us apart from other cities around the country. You know, you've had such an amazing career. Before I let you go, what kind of advice do you have for young people about getting involved in their community and saying when they see something wrong and making a difference? Uh, what I say to uh, young people, especially when I talk about um, being a part of the civil, growing up, being a part of the civil rights movement, I try to instill in them it's, it's a learning experience and how important it is to get involved. But it's not just about getting involved. It's about getting involved the right way. Mm-hmm. That means that it is unconfrontational, that it's not violent because you have a purpose. There's something that you, there's a goal. There's something that you want to see happen in your community or in your school or even in your home. And you approach it with the understanding that it's, there's, there's a resolution, but there's a peaceful resolution to it. So you organize, you get people that are like-minded to the issue that, you know, that you're concerned about and you work together and you don't stop until you achieve it and you do it respectfully, you know, as I said, and and peacefully. That's how people listen to you. They don't really want to hear you when you're combative and yelling and screaming and chanting, no justice, no peace, because that suggests that it's a problem or that you're angry. And, And you are, you should be, but that's not the approach that you should take. Edith Lee Payne, it was really, really nice to meet you and talk to you. I could talk to you forever. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this moment. You are listening to Women Who Lead. The show continues in just a few minutes. Women Who Lead continues. We check in now with Michelle Gilbert of Comcast. And Michelle, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and it's great to be with you. Now, this is a pretty good story for women that women should know about out there, Michelle. Comcast is doing some really interesting work helping female entrepreneurs during the pandemic. Talk to us a little bit about this. Absolutely. So let me give you a little bit of history. Uh, Back at the end of 2020, we introduced a program called Comcast RISE. And RISE stands for Representation, Investment, Strength, and Empowerment. And the program was really developed for us to be able to help those small businesses that were among the hardest hit during the pandemic. So we started with businesses that were owned by people of color. And within the first year across the nation, we helped over 6,000 businesses, um, including more than 500 right here in Michigan. So in typical Comcast fashion, when a program is working well, we take a look at it and we're like, how can we make this better? What opportunities are there to expand the program? The reason we chose to expand it this year to all women entrepreneurs is because uh, when we looked at the data, we realized that women businesses were among the hardest hit during the pandemic. 
Um, one of the main reasons for that is that women tend to own businesses that are considered non-essential. So mm. early in the pandemic, there were more women-led businesses that had to shut down, whether it was they were salons or fitness centers. They were businesses that were not considered essential. So they shut down for that time period, would put, which put them at a great disadvantage. And then I would tell you the other reason is that you know, on average, women are opening businesses at a faster rate than men, mm. but they have a harder time getting access to resources. So this was really a natural fit for us to expand the Comcast Rise program to help as many women entrepreneurs as possible. And what does the Comcast Rise program actually do for the women, Michelle? Sure. So there are uh, several different types of support. Let me start with the technology support because that's one that I think, first of all, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, we offer technology upgrades that could include computer equipment, internet, voice, and cybersecurity services all through Comcast Business. And what I think is so important about this type of support, particularly the cybersecurity services. During the pandemic, uh, cyber threats and attacks were significantly on the rise. Just as importantly, uh, those cyber threats started to hit the small and medium-sized businesses at a much higher rate than ever before. So if you're a small business owner, let's just say you own a restaurant. You're probably great at putting together a menu. You're probably really good at um, managing people, but you may not necessarily be an expert in technology. And even if you are tech savvy, maintaining the ability to um, know all of the cyber threats that are out there and what the latest, greatest technology is that's going to keep your system safe, that in and of itself could be a full-time job. So we feel this is a tremendous asset for business owners so that they can take that off their worry plate and just focus on running their business. And is there a financial component too for, for the entrepreneurs, Michelle? Yes. Well, so in the let me let me first say that the technology makeover in and of itself is valued at several thousand dollars. Wow. Um in the past, uh last year specifically. Comcast gave $1 million in grants to 100 businesses. So that was $110,000 grants that we gave right here in our city of Detroit. Um, I am hoping that that financial grant process comes back to Detroit this year. And I can guarantee you, Anne, if I have news to share, I will call you and let you know. Um, but in the meantime, so the financial grant portion is something that travels from one city to the next, whereas the uh, technology upgrades and the marketing and consultative services is really an ongoing program that a business owner could apply for at any time during the year. Let's talk a little bit about the cybersecurity element here. Give us a little bit of advice, all of us out there, Michelle, about how to protect ourselves, because that's one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with nowadays. And we keep hearing, you better be careful, more attacks are coming. 
Right. You're 100% right, Anne. And it's something that we have to be aware of, not just if we're a business owner, we also have to be aware of it in our home. And I would tell you that the most important thing that you can do is to protect, put the technology on your router. Because if you think about it, your router, if your router is protected from cybersecurity threats, it's going to block cybersecurity threats from all the devices on your network. And a lot of us don't realize just how many devices we have connected to our home network. Um, You know, we know that our laptops have to be protected and our phones, our tablets, but, you know, we've got cameras, we've got ring doorbells, we've got thermostats. Some of us even have appliances that are connected to our home Wi-Fi. All of these devices could potentially be a cyber threat if if something were to get through. So protecting your router with the right kind of software is valuable. Um, Comcast has a service that um, actually it's free to our internet customers. It's called Advanced XFi Advanced Security, and it's free because we're so passionate about how important it is. I would also tell you that. One of the other key things that anybody can do is when you get that notification that says there's a software update, do it right away. Don't put it off to the (laughs) end of the month, which I'm guilty of, because a lot of times those software updates have security patches in them because those cyber threats are uh, changing at such a rapid pace. You know, it sounds like Comcast is really committed to fighting and trying to solve this issue because we all have heard horror stories about people that have been attacked and what they've had to do, Michelle. So talk a little bit about the company's overview and the constant conversations that are taking place about cybersecurity. Yeah, so cybersecurity is absolutely something that um, every business needs to be aware of, and frankly, every consumer needs to be aware of. At Comcast, um, we, you know, we take this very seriously. We consider ourselves a technology partner for our business and residential customers, and so we are constantly investing in our network uh, from a security standpoint, from a capacity standpoint. Um, we are constantly investing in new technology to bring to our customers. I mentioned earlier the XFi advanced security that we have for residential customers, but we also have a program for business customers, particularly small mm-hmm. and medium business customers called Security Edge. Because again, um, you know, it's not just about protecting your computer with antivirus software. You really have to look at protecting every device that hits your network. And if you're a business that has offers your patrons Wi-Fi, you've got even more devices that are connecting. So um, we work with our business customers to educate them. Uh, we consider ourselves a tech partner so that we can provide them the type of support that they need. It's so interesting going back to Comcast helping women in business and the fact that they made this kind of commitment. The company must feel very strongly that the corporation needs to be connected to the community in order to be a successful corporation. Yeah. So, you know, 
Comcast, while our national headquarters are based in Philadelphia, our roots here in the city of Detroit and all of Michigan um, go back decades. And we really truly consider ourselves a local company. Um, we've got well over two. 3,000 employees who work in Michigan that call Michigan home. And I would tell you that giving back to the community is at the heart and soul of wh who our, what our company is made of. Um, we also recognize that small businesses are the backbone of our communities. And if our small businesses don't survive, we as a community are not going to thrive. So we feel that it is important to give back, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's also important to uh, the success of our community. And Michelle Gilbert, how can people learn more about what is out there for them and what's available? Well, I would encourage any small business owner, particularly women small business owners, uh, to go to ComcastRise.com. The application process is there. Um, in addition to the types of support that we offer, like the tech makeover, uh, the advertising support. And then I would also say for any business that wants to learn more about how they can protect themselves against cybersecurity, I would encourage you to go to comcastbusiness.com. Uh, in addition to information about the products and services, we have some really good educational articles that will help you. Michelle Gilbert of Comcast, it was great to have you on the show today. And thank you so much for your commitment to female entrepreneurs and for doing this for people in the community. It's such a great program. Thank you so much for helping to get the word out. You've been listening to Women Who Lead. On behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald, thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.